Hi, and welcome to the very first episode of Killer Hangover. I'm so excited about this podcast. It's two of my very favorite things, true crime and supernatural. And the best part of it is that I'm going to chit chat and share these stories with you with my mother. Hey, sweetie. (laughs) Hi, my name is Beth. And my name is Bettina. And not only will we share stories about true crime and the supernatural, but we will also sample adult beverages from the areas that we are going to be covering. Woohoo! Yeah, fun stuff. <laughs> so pour yourself a glass of whatever you're drinking and join us for some fun stories. This week we are covering Kansas. So I decided to grab a bottle of red from a small Kansas vineyard called Somerset Ridge Vineyard and Winery. It is located in Miami County, Kansas, and it is called Flyboy Red. All right. Let me pour you a glass here, Mama. Looks good. How you liking it? Oh, nice bouquet. Huh? <laughs> Mom, it's not flowers. <laughs> All right, let me taste it. <laughs> oh, tasty. Oh, good. <laughs> Actually, I really like that. Yeah. Really yummy. All right, well, I'm going to sit back and enjoy this while you tell me a true crime story from Kansas, Mom. All right, let me introduce you to Dennis Rader. Okay. Born in 1945. So he's as old as you? Really, honey? No. Oh. <laughs> He's younger. No. <laughs> no. no, he's older. <laughs> okay. okay. A lot older. He's raised in Wichita, Kansas. So he's very familiar with the city. He was a husband. He is a father of two. He was a Cub Scout leader and a member of the Christ Lutheran Church, which is important later on, uh, where he had actually been elected president of the church council. So he's a really good guy. Mm-hmm. He was regarded in the community as friendly and polite. He was even enlisted in the United States Air Force for four years. He worked in the Wichita-based ADT security system service from 1974 to 1988, installing alarm systems. So Dennis Rader, he's a nice guy, though. This can't possibly be the killer, right? No, <laughs> not at all. Because he sounds like a normal dude. Yeah. Let me tell you the dark side of Dennis Rader. Oh boy. From a young age, he harbored sadistical sexual fantasies involving bondage and torture and exhibited zoo sadism. What is that? I didn't know it was a word either, but it's the torturing and hanging of small animals. Okay, lovely. So yeah, he's a really good guy. (laughs) He also acted out sexual fetishes for erotic auto-erotic asphyxiation and Mm cross-dressing, and he'd often spy on the female neighbors while dressed in women's clothing and, don't blush, masturbate with robes or uh, ropes. With robes. With robes? (laughs) With ropes (laughs) or other bindings around his arms and neck. Okay. Yes, everybody keep in mind, this is why I'm drinking, because I'm doing this with my mother. (laughs) So, uh, this guy didn't happen to just get a wild hair and start killing people. He was kind of messed up since he was a little boy. 
In the Secret Confessions of the BTK, which was an exclusive interview done on Dateline Friday, uh, Raider states that his victims were just objects. He said that he actually got more satisfaction building up to the attacks and then afterwards more so than the actual killings. And this is a quote from him. I can't stop it. It controls me. It's like in the driver's seat. He's disgusting. Yeah. Then he added, there are a lot of lucky people out there. What? There would have been more if I had succeeded. You were almost guaranteed it. Well, see, Obi didn't We like that. forgot to introduce... <laughs> The star of our podcast, Obi. <laughs> that was my very large dog who <laughs> just introduced himself. He didn't like him. I don't like him either. Yeah. <laughs> now I'm going to talk to you about the attacks and the victims. And a lot of the, what I'm going to say was taken from his full confession in court. Okay. Um, and I watched it. It's on YouTube. Um, Channel 12 KWCH televised it. Oh, okay. The first murders happened January 15th, 1974. The Otero family, Joseph, Julie, Josephine, 11, and Joseph Jr., 9. Oh, no. And this is as Raider describes the event. He cut the phone lines, and then he tried the back door, and he almost backed out of doing it. He almost got scared. But then he went ahead, and the door was unlocked, so he walked in. He told the family that he was a fugitive from California and that he needed their car and he needed some cash. And so the easiest way to do that is if he tied them up. Oh my gosh. How terrifying. As he was tying them up, the family dog um, kept barking as Obi. Of course. <laughs> I'm sure he's smaller than Obi. Um, <laughs> and so instead of like doing anything to it, to him, Raider just opened the back door and let the dog out in the backyard. Oh, so good thing he's nice to dogs. Now. Well, yeah, oh, shoot. Yeah, that's right. I forgot. He's making up for <laughs> that's it. That's actually surprising then, I guess. So he took the family to the bedroom and continued tying them up. Uh, the father at the time had cracked ribs from a recent car accident. Mm -hmm. And so he laid him on the floor and made him more comfortable by putting a pillow under his head and making sure that his bindings weren't too tight to uh, hurt him. That just makes it even more... Like, he's still Contra human. Contradictory. It, yeah, that doesn't yeah. even make sense. So he decided because now they could, I think he was just going to initially just toy with the family to see if he can even get this far. Sick. But then he realized that they could identify him. And so he went ahead and decided at that moment that he was going to go with the, for the kill. Mm. Um, or in quotes, as he said, put them down. Yeah, because they're just objects. Yep. So he put a plastic bag over Mr. Otario's head and tied it. He then strangled with his hands both Mrs. Otario and little Josephine, and thinking that they were dead, but they had just really had passed out. Oh, no. Um, he went to check on Mr. Otario and found that Mr. Otario had bitten a hole in the bag. Oh, he's trying. So he then decided, well, I need something else. So he covered Mr. Otario's head with a couple of t-shirts and then another plastic bag. Oh my gosh. Um, and then, of course, he smothered to death. He then proceeded to put a bag over Joseph Jr.'s head, who, remember, is only nine. No, oh, poor baby. Um, Mrs. Otario woke up 
and she pleaded for her son's life. Of course. So then Raider basically told her he'll be fine and took the little boy to another room and then he proceeded to put a bag over her head and smother oh her. Oh gosh. Then went to the little boy, put a bag over his head and watched him die. Then he <laughs> took the little girl who had regained consciousness by that time and took her downstairs and tied her to overhanging pipes and strangled her to death there. Mm. He uh, took Mr. Oterio's watch and a radio, although he said he had no idea why he took those things. Are those like his trophies from the kill? He he didn't know why he took a watch and a radio. Yeah, that's a radio. I mean, he also... I understand, like, the watch... Well, I mean, I don't understand any killers, but I understand that they take, like, trophies and stuff, so well, the watch took, makes sense, right. but a radio... Right. And he took Josephine's panties, too. Oh, sick. But sick, sick, sick. Poor baby. He left through the front door, just casually walked out the front door, took their car, and parked it several blocks away, and just walked away. Um, he stated that he had projects, and the projects were the people that he followed. Mm-hmm. Uh, he went on to explain that the first stage was the trolling stage. He's like stalking did, them? Yes. Looking for projects. Okay. Okay. Then came the stalking stage. Okay. That's when he found the person's name, address, where they worked, their routine, basically stalked them. Mm-hmm. So the next project was Catherine Bright, age 21. Um, on April 4th, 1974, he broke into her house and waited for her to return home. He was not expecting her to return home with her brother, Kevin. Mm. He again told them that he was a fugitive from California. So he needed his their story. car. He needed yeah. money. And so in order for him to do that, he needed Kevin to tie his sister up. Mm. So Kevin did that. Um, and then he... Uh, and then Raider tied Kevin up. At that point, the judge asked, did you bring things to tie up the victim? A kill kit. He had um, a kill kit? Raider answered, I brought those things to the Oterios, but I didn't bring them this time to Catherine Bright's house. And then he said, but if I had, Kevin would be dead. What I used from there, he was able to break away from. Not bragging, but that's the fact. He's such a narcissist. Oh, you should have seen just watching him during this trial just was creepy because he looked normal. He his voice was totally normal, but some of the things he said would just and it doesn't phase him. No, like how there was no expression on his face through the whole thing. Through the whole thing, there was no expression. He called yeah. So in his kill kit that he usually carried was lengths of cord, hoods, plastic bags, tape, and wire cutters. When Kevin broke free. Uh, Raider actually had two guns on him and he shot Kevin twice in the head. Oh my gosh. Thinking he was dead, he just left him and he went, returned back to Catherine. She was strangled, but he hadn't perfected the strangulation thing yet. And so he ended up stabbing her several times until oh she was my dead. Gosh. His quote was, I was a mess. I had lost control. <laughs> He heard the door opening, thinking it was the police, so he scrambled to his feet, who it actually was, was Kevin, who had been shot twice in the head. Yeah. Yeah. It was him making his escape. Oh, my gosh. And um, he lived. Right. 
So I can't even imagine that poor guy, Kevin, to go through go through that. All of that horrific. Yeah. So in December of '74, three men claimed to the killing, and were arrested. So Raider was like, "No way, man! That is mine." Oh, <laughs> yeah. He did wrote, they put the two cases together? As did they think it was the same person? Uh, not yet. Okay. I don't think. Yeah, I mean, there's not too much similarity. She was stabbed. Mm-hmm. And that and was everything. a family. Right. So, um, so Raider wrote in this letter, those three guys didn't do it. I did. And here's how. And then he explained everything. Narcissist. Yeah. Um, and I think in that letter, he explained also the, the, the family. Mm-hmm. And then he signed the letter. The code words for me will be bind them, torture them kill them oh so yeah give him tk give himself the name yeah so then there was a three-year hiatus which is so because i kind of know this story this is the part that just blows my mind that there's he like stops for a while well i think if i remember correctly i think that was the around the time his uh daughter was born his first child was born so, so I don't he know. He had some cleansing in his soul. <laughs> uh, no, I don't know if there's any cleansing to that man, but Ugh. who am I to judge? The next victim was Shirley Vian, who was 24 and a mother of, I think, three young children. And oh that was gosh. March 17th, 1977. According to Raider, Vian was totally random. Someone else was actually his, quote, project, his project. but they weren't home. And now he was all keyed up and ready for a kill. And so he Gross. saw the little boy walking through the back door of Vian's house, her son. And so he knew that the house was unlocked and he walked in. Oh, my gosh. That is so scary. And this time, though, he said he was an investigator and he uh, had some questions. And so and I'm sorry, he knocked on the door and said he was an investigator. So he was let in. Nope. Nope. Somebody knocks on my door and I'm home alone with my boys. We hide. <laughs> I don't go to the door. No, you don't. You don't go to the door. Nope, we hide. <laughs> I'm going to check my ring camera real fast. <laughs> hey. I know. He explained to poor Shirley that he had sexual fantasies. As the investigator, he tells her this. <laughs> I don't, I'd be I think like, What? <laughs> Or by this is like, she already knows passed. she's in trouble. Yeah, I think okay. she knows she's in trouble at this time. <laughs> I'm an investigator and I have some great sexual fantasies. I'm mean, like, what the hell? What's your personal story? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. We shouldn't make light of this. No, we shouldn't. Sorry. They tied up the three small children, but they wouldn't stop crying. No, and they, course, were, they were frustrating him. So what he did was he put them in the bathroom. And he didn't kill them, right? No, he did not kill them. Okay. Later on, he said, had he not been in- interrupted, he would have. But I don't think he, I think he was just talking big. Um, because he threw in blankets, pillows, and toys. So there's that human aspect to him. Into that I the just bathroom. Don't, yeah, I don't And get then locked that. him in. Yeah. Then their mother, Shirley, proceeded to get sick, of course, because oh, yeah. she was so upset. And he said, I got her a glass of water and comforted her. Oh, my gosh. Then I put a plastic bag over her head and strangled her with a rope. <laughs> I mean, it's just like... I need a drink. <laughs> <laughs> oh, half the bottle's done. Yeah, okay. yeah. Well, <laughs> I'm just drinking while you're telling me this story. <laughs> this is a good I need wine. a drink, too. On December 8th of 1977, 
Nancy Fox, age 25, became his next project. He'd done his homework on her and knew her schedule, of course. He selected a night he knew that she was going to be out, broke into the house, and waited for her to come home, which to me is so creepy. So creepy. When she came home, he confronted her and told her that he had some sexual problem. Oh my gosh, this guy. Hey, he's being honest, though. I mean, at the end of the day, <laughs> he does have some some large sexual issues going well, on in that man's he told head. He told her that his plan was to tie her up and have sex with her. And those were his sexual fantasies. And so she was just like, okay, is that all? So she got upset and they sat at the kitchen table while she smoked a cigarette. And I guess discussed what was going to happen. Oh my I don't really know. That's crazy. Okay. According to Raider. Now remember, this is all according to him. Ah, Nancy it. said, okay. After she stubbed her cigarette out. Okay. Let's get this thing over with so I can call the police. And she went to the bathroom and undressed, which is what he had asked her to do. And then she came out and he proceeded to strangle her with a belt until she died. He did not have sexual relations with her, but he did masturbate after she was dead. And I only say that because he left DNA, which is important. Right. Later that same day, the police did get a call. The caller told them that they would find a homicide at 843 SP. Pershing. I did say homicide because he that said, is exactly how, what he said. Oh my God. Not homicide. So I don't think you will find in, a homicide. He's not very intelligent, then I'm assuming. Oh no. There was supposedly a witness that actually saw him calling from a payphone around that time. I think it was like in the Dillon's parking lot or something like that. A payphone? What's a payphone? I'm just kidding. <laughs> Not that dense, but yeah. <laughs> Note to listeners that still at this time, public no- there was no public knowledge that there was a serial killer. So they haven't tied all these crimes together by this time yet? Well, remember serial killer was still kind of yeah, that's kind of true. a loose term. Yeah, I've seen point. Mindhunter. <laughs> so, yeah, y'all seen Mindhunter. You know how that works. This case was in Mindhunter, actually. Yeah, but not to the full. No, gosh, no. Next season, hopefully. Oh, I hope so. We're sick. (laughs) Yeah, we are. (laughs) A postcard on which was written a poem was sent to the Wichita newspaper. Oh, now he's trying to get all clever. Made it to the newsroom. Okay. Ten days later, another letter was sent to the TV network. How many more people do I have to kill before I get some publicity? Oh, he's getting pissed off. Two typewritten pages entailing who he had killed and added that he had, if he not, had not been interrupted, he would have killed those little children also, Mm-mm. which Mm-mm. I don't know. Mm-mm. You know, I just don't trust this guy one way or the other. No. Shoot. February 1978, um, the public was finally told what was going on, but there were no solid leads. The public's reaction? Fear. And of installing course. ADT systems. Oh my gosh. That's just so ironic. I know. In April of that year, Raider had another, quote, project in sight. Anna Williams, 63-year-old widow. She normally came straight home after her weekly square dancing event. But on this particular night, I think God was taking care of her because she instead went to her daughter's house. Oh, good. When she got home the next day, she found some things missing. And when she attempted to call the police, she had found that her phone line had been cut. It, at the time, it was thought that it was just a burglary. I can never say burglary. Bur- I can't either. Burglary. Burger. Burger. Burglary. 
Moving on. <laughs> Until a few weeks later, when police received a package with a drawing depicting a bound woman, a poem, and one of Anna Williams' scarves. Mm, my gosh. Shortly after that, she moved out of the state. <laughs> <laughs> See ya. In 1982, uh, the FBI finally became involved. And from 84 to 86, there was an eight-man team. They called themselves the Ghostbusters. Okay. And their total job, nothing else, their total job was to find BTK. Really? Yep. They had computers, profilers, and DNA testing. Now, from the source that I was looking at, it said first DNA in the U.S. was used in this case. Really? Which I thought was kind of cool. But that was 84. Can I just can't picture all the cases that have gone without DNA. I know. Like, you just don't think about that. Like nowadays you think like that's just a common thing. Like they just look at DNA and it's hard to believe. And it's really interesting to think about what the future could yeah, hold for crime. No kidding. No kidding. So um, after the case went nowhere, the task force was shut down in 86. So it was only, it only ran for two years with absolutely no clue. Gosh. Um, April 27th in 85, Maureen Hedge, age 53, was victim number eight. Mm. She was out with her boyfriend when Raider broke into her house to wait for her. And again, that just so creeps me out. Mm-mm. I mean, to have someone knock on your door and whatever, but then to have somebody in your house when you come home. Oh, gosh. That's like my worst fear. Soon after her boyfriend left for his own home, Raider came out of her bedroom closet. Oh, my gosh. He strangled her with a pair of her own nylons. Then he stripped her, put her in the trunk of his car, and drove to the Christ Lutheran Church, where, again, he was the president of the council. He took pictures of her posed body around the church. Then he dumped her body on a dirt road, and she was found eight days later. Oh, my gosh. Victim number nine, Vicki Waggerly, age 28, a wife and a mother of a two-year-old. Who no. the two-year-old and her were home at the time of the killing. No. Uh, Raider pretended to be a telephone repairman at that time to gain access into the house. After tying Vicky up, he changed clothes into his, quote, hit clothes. Vicky was able to break free and they fought. Before he lost any more control, he strangled her with her own stockings again. He took pictures, as he had in previous crimes, and took the car keys. And her driver's license. This is important. In 2004, BTK sent a letter which included Vicky's driver's license and crime scene pictures. Now, what's interesting about this is the police never took crime scene pictures. Because when they were called to the house, she was still alive. Interesting. So they called an ambulance instead, obviously. And they had, you know, the break-in and those kind of pictures, but they never had her in any crime scene pictures. Okay. Okay, because she wasn't dead. Right. But he had taken them because he thought she was dead. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. So then we come to his last victim, January 18th, 1991, Dolores Davis, age 62. He broke into her house. And these, used... these ages are all over the board. They are. They They're totally really... are. That's... At first I was thinking about all the 20-year-olds you were talking about. and then, But no, there's two elderly women mm-hmm. now and mm-hmm. families. So there's not even a gender. No, it's mostly women, though. Mostly women, yes. I, mean, I, I think the men were only victims because they, they were in the there. wrong place at the wrong time. Wow. He wasn't expecting them. Well, he was a little guy, too. So it's not like he 
No, he's not teeny. No? Okay. No. He's regular size, I guess. Regular I size. <laughs> I don't okay. know what you call it. <laughs> um, he broke into her house and lied again. He went back to his California fugitive lie. Okay. He needed food and a car and some cash. Um, he talked to her for a while and calmed her down. Then he tied her hands and feet and strangled her. Oh, my God. Here you go again. He put her in the trunk of her car, put her body in one spot, and he drove and put her clothes in another. Then he drove her car back to the car, or back to the house, because he had lost his gun, which he had brought. <laughs> he found it. Then he t- went back and picked up her body. And then dumped her in another place underneath oh a bridge. God. This guy's all over the place. No. And her body was found 13 days he later. so intelligent. So intelligent. Then in 2004, the Wichita Eagle newspaper received an envelope containing what I'd spoken about before. The letter, three photos, and Vicki Waggerly's driver's license. Okay. And at this time, this, that case was unsolved. And in fact, the police were looking at her husband for wow. the killer. So okay. he actually, you know, got the husband cleared with wow. that letter. Yeah. The letter that he sent was signed Bill Thomas Kilman. V T K. He's like trying to be clever. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> so him and his homocides. <laughs> the, the homocide decided that he was going to be clever. One thing that he does have claim to is no serial killer has ever come back after so long. Right. He didn't want to communicate with the police any longer by writing. And so he asked, he sent in written form, obviously, he asked if they, if he used a floppy disk, could they trace him? <laughs> and the police said, uh, no, no <laughs> way. I mean, they're the police. They have to tell you the truth. That's like the number one rule in policemanness, right? <laughs> yeah. Shoot, I have to tell a story next. <laughs> this one is good. A few weeks later, the local Wichita TV station received a floppy disk. Do you remember what that is? Actually, I do. We used to use them in like <laughs> elementary school and they were teaching us about computers. But yeah, I, I do. Yeah, those <laughs> weird things that aren't even around anymore, I don't mm, think. No, no. The disk was, of course, embedded with the username of the writer, which if you guys know about floppy disks, that's what is on them. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the writer on the floppy disk was Raider. And dun, the lo- dun, dun. And the location of the computer was Christ Lutheran Church. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> and it showed that the disk had been saved there. The basic internet search found that Dennis Raider um, was the president of the Christ Lutheran Church. But <laughs> along, with the Jeez, de- along with DNA and, of course, this, um, he was arrested. At his arrest, Raider actually expressed shock what? and dismay <gasps> that the police had deceived him. Oh, how dare they? <laughs> he had such an ego that he thought that the lead detective and he were buds. They were of course, friends. Of course. Okay, I'm going to end with his quote. Okay. The floppy did me in. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. The floppy. Dang it. Dang you <laughs> floppy. That's hilarious. So that was my introduction to Tennis Raider. Yeah, and the BTK. I remember when that all was happening. Um, believe it or not, I was in college. <laughs> so. I just, 
it just doesn't make sense that he like took so much time off. That still just blows my mind. Like between all the killings that went on for so long. Well, maybe during that time he had I don't a good relationship with his wife. I don't know. How did he she had, not see any of this? I don't know. I don't know. But there were some. I you know of course when you do research on these people you see pictures and stuff and this guy creeped me out. There were pictures of him dressed in this. Um, mask, you know, those plain white masks that you can buy. Yeah. He decorated it to, he put makeup on it so that it would look like a woman's face, oh. you know, with the eyebrows and the lashes and red lipstick. Um, and he'd wear that and then he'd tie himself up and ha- have pictures of himself with no. uh, nooses around his neck. And he took pictures of himself. Of himself. Hanging in a tree. Pictures of himself. How did nobody see him hanging in a tree? Nobody ever saw him do any of these. And how did he your wife buried not... himself so that only his head was sticking out of? I mean, there's a picture. This I ah. saw the picture. What? He buried himself, and so and so only his head was sticking out <laughs> out of the sand. Oh my gosh! Well, it's Mom, funny. We're on a podcast. They can't see you. But you, you just did. <laughs> oh, and how happy I am! I I witnessed that little expression you. But just what's made. funny is that. He was on a, he was a camp scout leader. Okay. And he had taken a bunch of scouts out. People trusted him with their children. Well. I mean, this is all hindsight. Like, we are all looking at this from now, knowing who he was. Right. That's what just blows my mind. That you don't, when you see something, you should say something. Like, how do you not have a bad feeling about this guy? Yeah, but look at him. I don't know. I don't don't know. Mm -hmm. I mean, look at Bundy. Look at, I mean, they just have two sides of him. Yeah. You know, but when he buried himself, it was when the scouts <laughs> were sleeping and he almost got caught because Bearing he was himself? stuck. No, <laughs> he was stuck. <laughs> As your boys say, I'm stuck. Those were he both almost, of my boys' very first words. He stuck, almost didn't stuck. get out of his <laughs> grave. He almost didn't get out of it in time to wake up where he was supposed to the next morning. <laughs> imagine like a little cub scout like finds his camp counselor like stuck in the sand. No, no what's even funnier is he doesn't find him so he alerts the other camp <laughs> counselors <laughs> oh anyway all right <laughs> anyway okay well let me get my notes together here man i forgot i had to tell a story i'm just sitting okay, here drinking now listening. my time to drink Woo, there's gonna be a lot of be there's gonna be a lot of slurring in this one i apologize okay so For my supernatural story, and we choose to do the supernatural after the true crime because this can get a little more goofy. Obviously, it's based on true stories, but, you know, we can do the heavy stuff with the true crime and follow it up with something a little little lighter. Okay. Okay. (laughs) You say okay. Okay. Anyway, so I am going to cover Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. It is the oldest active U.S. Army post west of Washington, D.C. It's just a little history on it. It was built in 1827 and was considered at one time the intellectual center of the Army. Really? Yeah. I, no. We yeah. lived there for a while, so <laughs> really? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I lived there when I was, what, preschool? We lived there when I was in preschool? Kindergarten. Kindergarten? Okay. Kindergarten. The fort has over 1,000 buildings. 1,500 housing quarters, one of them being the oldest home in Kansas. Wow. And one of them being, obviously, the old home of 
me. <laughs> Just bad. That's torn down now. Oh, well, bad joke. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. <clears throat> moving on. It sits on about 5,600 acres. It's most famously known, not for housing me, unfortunately, but as the military corrections complex, the United States disciplinary barracks, the Department of Defense's only max security prison. Not to be confused with the infamous Leavenworth Penitentiary. Right. So let's start with the United States Disciplinary Barracks, the USDB, history, and then followed by the ghost. I'll just do a short history of it because it's super interesting history. Okay, so back in 1874, it was really hard to track military prisoners uh, mixed in with regular prisoners because they didn't have computers or floppy disks. (laughs) (laughs) Floppy did me in. I mean, that's probably the most obvious statement. You know, 1874, they didn't have that. So, uh, but regular prisoners and military prisoners were treated as two different jurisdictions. Men and women that go AWOL are treated differently than like a burglar. See? (laughs) See? So they opened the prison in 1874. But here's the thing. There was no physical building. So the prisoners literally built their own prison. I was like digging your own grave. Basically, the building was built with a large building in the center that they called the castle. And yes, there is a Robert Redford movie about this prison out. It's called like something castle. (laughs) There's an inside. (laughs) Wow. And branching out from the castle was 12 towers. They built the building with very little communal area. They really didn't want the prisoners like being communal. (laughs) Socializing. Thank you. Which has to suck. Like, I would just die not being able to socialize with anybody. Yes, you would. (laughs) They wouldn't even have to put you in a cell. (laughs) I'd go crazy. It had multiple wings and cell blocks and housed over a thousand prisoners at a time. They worked on the construction for over 46 years, and this building actually stayed in use as a prison until 2002. That's 128 years. Alcatraz was another disciplinary barracks, and it was only open for 29 years. Oh, that's crazy. So 128 years. That just blows my mind. They must have built really good building, those prisoners. (laughs) They built a really good building. They did. In 2002, before they tore the building down, Gail Dillon of Airman Magazine wrote that a visitor would immediately notice the medieval ambiance of this institution, the well-worn native stone and brick walls constructed by long-forgotten inmates, when hard labor meant exactly that. These walls have witnessed thousands of inmates' prayers, curses, and pleas over the past 128 years, and that entering the facility was like stepping back in time or suddenly being part of a kitschy, kitschy, kitschy? Yep. Movie set about a prison bust. They moved prisoners into a new USDB in like two th- in 2002. And this one only holds like 500 inmates. So it's like half oh, the goodness. size and everything. So obviously as a prison, they had riots and fights between the prisoners. But these were military trained men and women. So I can't even imagine what those fights were like. There was also a lot they of... should have let them talk it out. Yeah. <laughs> but they couldn't commune. I mean, we'll think about even like the MPs or the the guards at these prisons like they just had to be some rough yeah people yeah um there's also a lot of torture talking about the guards there's a lot of torture among the prisoners one form of torture that they really liked to use was called high cuffing where they would cuff the men high high cuffing and cuff them in high where they could barely stand on their tippy toes oh how awful oh gosh so because of torture there was actually a few deaths a lot of deaths because of that but because of the time 
period that it was in, they would blame, the prison blamed it on pneumonia or the flu. Mm. That's what they would tell these prisoners' Mm -hmm. families. Uh, There were several deaths in the prison, including 21 death row executions. There was also a mass execution in 1945, 14 German POWs from World War II, so Nazis, uh, were sent to Leavenworth. So the interesting story behind these men, they were um, prisoners of war in a camp with a bunch of other Nazis. And while they were there, they got mad at other Nazis because it seemed like they were starting to talk to the U.S. government. So mm-hmm. they killed the other Nazis in this camp. So they were sent to Leavenworth because oh, of I that. see. Okay. And they were all hung from an elevator shaft and dropped to the castle basement. Oh. So this leads us into the ghosts. Because of the hanging, you can imagine the restless spirits in that elevator shaft. Several people and even the prisoners of the time claimed to hear screams coming from the elevator shaft. Mm -hmm. German voices are even heard in the basement. Yeah, boy. (laughs) Huh? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, you just speak the German. I just (laughs) will tell the stories of the ghosts. The story goes that in Tower 8, a soldier had committed suicide. Many people see a figure in Tower 8. Well, saw. It's been torn down since. One story says that an MP, so military police, saw a man in the tower pointing a rifle at him. So when he went to investigate, no one was in the tower, let alone in the building. Hmm. The tower was did not have a phone, but other towers and other buildings would receive calls traced back to the barracks and only static on the other end. Gosh, that is so weird. I mean, a lot of stories like yeah, that. Yeah, I know. It's, it's just, I can't imagine picking up the phone and just... It's so scary. It doesn't scary. happen on cell phones. <laughs> <laughs> if it did, that would be more terrifying. So guards at the towers, uh, so even when it was a working prison, guards at the towers would hear like boot steps coming up the stairs to get to the towers, and they'd open the door, you know, trap door or whatever. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm picturing like an actual castle, but I know it was like <laughs> much <laughs> later in life here. The facade. Yes. But so they'd hear footsteps, and when they'd open the door, there's nobody there. So this is even when it was a working prison. So there's just a lot. Yeah. So, I will say, though, there is a military prison cemetery, and the tombstones show the deaths to be between 1884 and 1957. There are 240 documented plots where the um, 14 prisoners of war, POWs, the German POWs, Mm -hmm. are actually buried there. They're tucked in the back left corner of the Half Acre Cemetery. The sign outside the cemetery literally states... The men buried there either had no next of kin or their families refused the remains. So those spirits just can't be at peace. I can't even imagine. Right. One tombstone reads only the prison number, 31614. And this belonged to serial killer, child rapist, all-around bad guy, Carl Panzram. Maybe we'll cover him one day. Oh, yeah. He was housed in Leavenworth's USDB for two years from 1908 to 1910 for larceny. Just the beginning of his crime days. Uh, he went on to become terrible. Oh, so he wasn't even imprisoned. He was just imprisoned at for USDB for larceny. Later in his career life of crime, he became much worse. That was just the beginning of his so crime So why spree. is he buried there then? He must have gone back. I think because he was a military man. He Okay, so he was in and out of several prisons. Mm-hmm. He was housed at USDB for only two years, and they let him out, and he went out and did some bad things. He ended up being at Leavenworth Penitentiary. Okay. And because he's military, I think he had to be buried 
on the post. So he was buried but there. But he's buried at the military prison cemetery. Okay. And he was quoted as saying, again, he was only there for larceny for two years. Mm-hmm. And he was quoted as saying that any goodness left in him was smashed out during Leavenworth imprisonment at the USDB. And that probably was... wasn't much goodness in him to begin <laughs> no. with. But... <laughs> no. <laughs> but that, that makes it, it's just I mean, it terrifying. just makes it, yeah. Just, I, I mean, I can't imagine being in prison anyway, but. No, just... yeah. Another gravestone in the cemetery only has the word unknown, mm. which leaves me with a lot of questions. Doesn't it have a prison number? How do they not know what one of their prisoners yeah. names? It's an unknown prisoner. So weird. Very weird, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So another ghost story in Fort Leavenworth is that of Catherine Sutter. She and her husband, Haram, Hiram, H-I-R-A-M. I meant to look that up and how to pronounce that. Sorry. Uh, Her son, Ethan, and their daughter, Mary, stopped in Fort Leavenworth in the fall of 1880 on their way to Oregon. One cold early evening, again, Haram, Hiram, sorry, sent his children out for firewood, and they never returned. Oh, no. So he and Catherine decided to stay through the winter to wait for their children's return. Catherine searched the fields, the woods, and everything in between in search of her children every day, every night calling for them and to this day she's still seen in um she's seen in the national cemetery at fort leavenworth she's also actually seen on the golf course a lot Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh you've heard this story yes i'll tell you something but go ahead i want to hear it so she's seen in like a black calico dress and sometimes they just hear someone calling out for children or they see her just wandering the really sad thing about the story, though, she's actually buried there in the cemetery. You can find her tombstone. But she died of pneumonia because she was out searching for her children oh. through the winter. She died of ended up dying of pneumonia. And the really sad thing is during after the winter time in the spring, her children were returned to Fort Leavenworth from the Fox Indian tribe from the local area. Right. They had rescued the children from the river. When they oh my gosh! And held on to them just to keep them safe because it was a really harsh fall and winter, I guess. Uh-huh. And so they returned them in the, in the spring, spring when it when they could, and she had already right died after her death, searching for her children. It's so sad. That's heartbreaking. And that is a true story. Like it's her grave is there and everything, but I guess she's seen there. So you have a story. For, well, it isn't. Um, I used to walk with my girlfriend around the. Well. If you, you naturally pass the golf course as you're walking around. And when it was always in the evening after dinner and we were, remember Charlotte? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we were walking around and um, we just at one point got the heebie-jeebies right during a conversation that we were having. Really? And we turned around, but there, I mean, we didn't see anything, but it was so eerie and none of us knew the story really and then later on we heard that story yeah i guess it's a pretty common occurrence that like she's seen everywhere i mean gosh if i was in her shoes i'd be searching for the end of eternity for my children but i just it's so sad that they were alive and Months after, you know, she passed, they were returned. It's just so sad. Mm -hmm. So there's obviously way more haunted stories of Leavenworth. Maybe one day we'll cover them, but I didn't want to make this terribly long. The last haunted tale I will tell, and oh my gosh, I wrote tale, T-A-I-L, of Fort Leavenworth. (laughs) Oh boy. Uh, Was I drinking when I wrote these notes? Probably. (laughs) Is the haunted rookery, which is the 
oldest house in Kansas. It was built in 1827. It's housed many, many, many families, Uh obviously. There's an article I read on a family that lived there. The wife had this article written by the wife and some of her experiences there. Some of it I can probably, to quote, Zach Baggins, debunk. Uh (laughs) I'm sure other people use that debunk, but I can debunk a lot of this because it's a 192-year-old home. So you're going to hear creaks. So you're going to hear creaking floors, doors opening and closing and lights flickering. Like, I mean, every ghost story hears that. So I was like, I got to find some fun stories on this. Some of these you just can't write off. Now, is this, excuse me, is this on post or off a post? It's said as on post. It was. So yeah, it's a duplex. It was 12 and 14 Sumner. It was on Fort Leavenworth. Okay. So one story that she wrote about was that items went missing around the house, like a phone and a TV remote. They just could not find them for the life of them. They searched and they searched. One day while she was out, she found them in her purse. Hmm. I mean, sometimes you can write that <laughs> off. Uh, I mean, I found my keys in, you know, random places. I or can her write children could have done that. I could have debunked that one. But, I mean, I just find that weird. Like An odd place. Very. So I guess the spirits didn't seem to like their cats. So she had a lot of stories about how, like, one night she looked up at her cat and was calling her cat to come down with her. And the cat would just stand on the top of the stairs and wouldn't come down. Mm-hmm. I mean, you got to trust a, an animal. Like, they, exactly. I truly trust them. And she said that all the hair was standing up on the back of his head. Or a head. <laughs> on, the, on its back. He has more hair than just on his head. And except there looked like a pat like a hand on its back no way so all the hair standing up except for it looked like a hand print down on the cat's hair the cat died shortly thereafter no, <laughs> of a heart attack obviously it couldn't move it's like something was holding it down no yeah uh i've never heard a story like that i know that is crazy and the cats when nobody was home somebody would let the cats out of the house who let the cats out <laughs> uh one night when a cat was trying to sleep in the bed with them the house like didn't like it and just all throughout the noise all throughout the night jesus wine is good all throughout the night they would just hear like pounding and like tons of noises throughout the house talk about passive aggressive (laughs) (laughs) uh until they just kicked the cat out of bed and then it's calmed down Mm -hmm. so they would hear an old woman in the home i don't know how you decipher if a lady sounds old or not i don't know dearie (laughs) So they would hear a young girl throwing tantrums. She couldn't have been the old lady, right? (laughs) And they had boys. They didn't have girls. And had even seen an old man with scraggly, shaggy white hair and a robe. That's going to be me. (laughs) I'd be walking around with my robe. (laughs) A scraggly beard? Yeah. (laughs) Sure. Um, So the young boys living in the home actually had to sleep with music on at night to block out the noises they would constantly hear in each other's rooms. So boy number one was kept awake by noises they were hearing in boy number two's room. When you go and check, boy number two didn't hear anything. But then later through the night, boy number two would hear noises in room number one. But but room number one didn't hear anything. So they just learned to sleep with. I mean, this is before the, you know, sound machines that we use <laughs> now. Both my boys have allowed one. Hell, I have one. But yeah, they had to sleep with music on in their rooms. Here's another article I had read about a, a ghost woman seen with long, dark hair who would charge at people in the home with long nails, like clawing at Ooh. them. Ooh. The article mentioned the old woman in the home as well and said she was seen, this is a quote from this article, chattering in the corner. <laughs> 
chatter, 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 chatter. <laughs> just chatter, chatter, chatter. I just figured this whole woman like waving her arms around, like we're just talking. Just to the <laughs> she's she's looking for that old man in his robe. She's pissed at him about something. <laughs> Will you let the cats out of the house again? <laughs> it's probably the cats. <laughs> um. So my dad was stationed there for a second time a few years ago. So I asked my sisters who lived there if they experienced anything while living on the fort. And my sister Anna, she had a lot of ghost stories about Leavenworth. And one of my favorites that she told me was they had a like a playground behind their home. There's one swing that would always swing on its own on like the other five swings would not be moving, but this swing would be like aggressively swinging by itself weird and it was just like a known thing nobody would swing on that swing yeah i wouldn't either <laughs> um, plus so- it was moving all the time she couldn't get on, <laughs> <you> get on? <laughs> and actually one of her really good friends lived in the rookery oh so i jumped on the phone right away when she texted me that and i was like tell me everything so they would stay the night there which i would never want to do and she said every time she would just have like just uncomfortable feelings in that house they would hear singing at night and she even heard pounding on the basement door like somebody was trying to get out. Not in? Yeah, I don't know. I hope <laughs> they were trying to get out and they weren't on Could her side. trying I don't to know. get I don't in. Know. I don't know. Uh, one night, she said, her friend got up in the middle of the night to get some water. And on her way downstairs, she tripped at the top of the staircase. Oh, no. And would have fallen, but something caught her by her the back of her shirt and pulled her up before she fell. Holy smokes. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, you, you and usually I, hear the opposite. Well, you and I have fallen down we plenty fall. of stairs. <laughs> yeah. But can you imagine just knowing you're falling, but then being pulled? pulled so you're back. scared that you're going to fall, but then something grabs you, pulls you back. I don't know what would scare me more. I think I'd rather just fall. <laughs> well, and turn around and see there's nobody, nobody there. there. So that is just a few haunted stories of Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. I liked it. Yeah. So, thank you guys so much for joining us for our very first episode. We are so excited to be doing this podcast. Yes, it's fun. It's two of our favorite things. Well, three if you count the drinking. Four if you count spending time together. There you go. Oh, aw. <laughs> <laughs> so, next week, where are we, we are going to be covering California. Oh, yeah. I will be covering the true crime story, which I cannot wait to share with you. And I will be covering the supernatural. We'll be covering the booze and the booze. The booze and the booze? Yeah. <laughs> the supernatural and the adult beverage. Yes, yes that's me. So if you liked us and want to follow us, we are on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, on Facebook, we're Killer Hangover Podcast and Instagram. You can find us at Killer Hangover. You can also email us at killerhangoverpodcast at gmail.com. Mom, this was a lot of fun. Yes, it was. Thank you, guys. Cheers, Mama. Cheers. Love you, kid. <laughs>